Hi, I'm Fred Schonenberg, and thank you for joining me on the Venture Fuel podcast. At Venture Fuel, we help companies find new solutions by partnering with the best startups from around the world. On the show, you'll learn the secrets of business leaders who tap into startups and the founders driving extraordinary results. We'll consider new ideas, stretch our mindsets beyond the status quo, and in the process, discover how to leap the competition and fuel personal growth. On today's show, we have Sarah Hofstetter, who is the president of Profit Tarot, the leading global e-commerce intelligence platform. Previously, Sarah spent 13 years at award-winning advertising agency 360i, most recently as chairwoman and CEO, growing the agency from 5 million to 180 million by continuously pivoting company offerings to be aligned with changes in consumer behavior. She currently serves on the board of directors at Campbell's Soup Company and is the host of the Brave Commerce podcast. Today, we talk about how to future-proof your business, the opportunities for omni-channel marketing, and how Sarah continuously pivots to better serve her clients. So let's get after it. Sarah, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Fred. It's so good to connect. I'm uh, honored to be a guest. Well, I have to say, as I was doing research, I came across a post that you put on put up about a, I don't know, about a year ago on LinkedIn. It was beautiful. It was very raw and, and authentic around, uh, you know, 25 years previously, you had started your first job. And it was so good because it's talking about your, your dreams of journalism. Uh, and then, you know, at that time, the person that was willing to hire you was like a PR agency in New Jersey. If I'm remembering this all right. And, you know, you went to Barnes and Noble and looked up like, you know, whatever the PR for dummies was at the time. It so resonated with me just because I, I also wanted to be a journalism. I was a journalism sort of major in college and applied to everywhere and nobody would take me. And someone offered me a job as a copywriter. And I was like, I have no idea what this is, but yes, like I'm writing and someone's going to pay me. I'll figure it out. So it was pretty cool to read that, that post. Yeah. I think when I was starting out, certainly you kind of took whatever you could get. The rejection letters uh, was enough to make anybody go mad. Yeah. And yeah, I did well in college. I uh, had good internships. But I think one of those things with being a liberal arts student is, and I see this now, I have a, a daughter who's about to graduate college with a liberal arts degree. And you kind of see the situation where coders, they get jobs months in advance. Accountants, they get jobs months in advance. Consultants get jobs a year or two in advance of graduation. Liberal arts, you're applying for jobs weeks before graduation because if you go too early, it's like a problem. If you come too late, you've already missed the gold rush. And so, yeah, I took the first job I could get because it <laughs> it was my ticket to independence. Well, so, but let me ask you this because I was a liberal arts major also. Do you feel that that and your background in journalism, how do you think that has served you over the long haul? Like, obviously it's a little challenging right out of school getting a job, but do you think it is played a role in your ability to you know, ask questions and write stories and all the things you do now in your career? Well, it's funny. You, know, you said you're, you were a journalism student. I was a journalism student. I think that now we're both hosting podcasts. Yeah. Perhaps we're just living out our fantasies in some professionally relevant manner. <laughs> you got it. I think that the fundamentals of journalism apply to pretty much anything that you do in your career. Because in the end, we're storytellers no matter what get to the point, give me the who, what, where, when, why, how. And in fact, when I was at 360i, I commissioned a journalism 101 class 
for our employees if any of them wanted to learn. Because think about writing a PowerPoint slide. How many times do you see those stupid headlines that say, this is what you're about to see? And then you spend five minutes trying to decipher the crap that is in six-point font versus give me a nut graph. Give me stuff that actually gets me excited about reading what's next, like bring my eye in. So yeah, I think think the fundamentals of journalism are, are valuable for anybody in the professional realm. It's so funny. My, my team listening to this is probably like rolling their eyes because I'm always like, stop burying the lead. Yes. Like, oh. like, tell them why they should read on, why they should pay any attention. Like they've got a million things they're thinking about. Like what is the one thing if you want to get it across? Like let's get it across. Let's see. Yes or no. At least we're moving forward. Strength in numbers. I hope you're right. I hope that between the two of us, we can, we can change PowerPoint forever. Yes, I love it. That is an audacious goal to start this off. Speaking of sort of audacious goals, I want to go back to 360i. You started their social media capability before Twitter, Snapchat, and Instagram existed. I want to kind of dive in a little bit to how did you see that change coming? And then also that leap of faith moment. Right? You guys were successful. You were doing you know, different things. And at that moment to go, hey, this is going to be something, I think is a lot of people see these, these trends or opportunities, but the status quo is going okay, so they don't jump. Just curious if you can kind of remember that, that moment in time and, and how you kind of led that charge. It was not this like lightning you know, pivot or anything like that initially. I think it was over the course of, I don't know, maybe a few weeks or something like that, where we started noticing because 360i was a search agency, that some of the best search results for our clients was coming in the form of user-generated content. And when you try to better understand who are these people that are creating this user-generated content, they went from having zero influence to having a ton of influence. However, the brands didn't appreciate that. So when we would make recommendations to our clients that one of the ways they can increase their SEO would be to build relationships with those creators of user-generated content, they would look at you like you have three heads. And that was where the opportunity actually came up, was a mechanism to improve search engine optimization. So the idea behind social media and leading with influence and what was you know back in the day of you know, 2005, 2006 of saying, hey, these people are actually important. They're important for search, but they're important in general. And then who do you have on the front lines building your relationships with those folks? Interns. Yeah. So you're putting your least skilled employees talking to people that could influence the perception of your brand for quite some period of time. And that was where that change in consumer behavior was also about to really heavily affect brand perception. And it was the start of the idea that consumers actually are about to get more power in brand perception than what a brand can say in a TV spot or a billboard or something like that. So it it was somewhat evolutionary, but then it, it, it took off in that A, we started selling it to customers as an offering that we thought initially was for SEO. And then it turned out, not turned out, it was kind of, you know, Monday morning quarterbacking. But like, I saw that the brand teams were way more interested than the performance marketing teams. 
And that led to 360i having these two pillars, the search pillar, which was really performance media and the social pillar, which was about brand equity. Very, very different initiatives, very different objectives, different decision makers, different budgets, but it was really the core of how 360i built up. Speaking of that, I mean, you, you took 360i from, from 5 million to 180 million, as I, I mentioned at the beginning. And in the bio, I'll quote it here, by continuously pivoting company offerings to be aligned with changes in consumer behavior. I love everything about that. I mean, that is, you know, you're listening closely, right, to the, the consumer behavior. You're willing to kind of adopt and ad- adapt everything in order to serve that end. When you're scaling 5 million to 180, how do you decide where to allocate money, your effort, your resources in terms of like what's working, right? Like I'm, I'm sure you guys had a very robust SEO going and then you see this new opportunity. Can you talk about that sort of dynamic as a leader when you, you see the, the two lanes? Uh, and, and obviously you grew both of them, but just curious how you think about that dynamic. Well, I don't remember who said this, but a lot of people take credit for having said it. I just know it wasn't me. Success has a thousand fathers, failures, and orphans. So just to be clear, this was not my success. There were a lot of people involved in it. And making these decisions are not decisions you make alone. And I didn't make them alone. And the people I worked with didn't make them alone. It was actually a lot of challenging convention and trying to think through, like, what's the worst that could happen if we put the next dollar into this? And really playing a little bit more of almost like a portfolio strategy and saying, okay, you know, we're going to try the social media thing. We're going to give it enough rope to hang itself. But we also recognize that if this thing doesn't start working out, there's a cutoff point. Yeah. There's a point where we're, we are going to either you know pull back or pivot or something like that. And so it was never one of those things where we just diverted resources somewhere else. I think More often than not, we were saying no more than we were saying yes. There were a lot of things. Second Life. Second Life's a great example. Remember Second Life, which is now, I guess, the metaverse? (laughs) That was a quick... uh, It it took it 15 years to find its footing, but now it's the metaverse. Hey, look, that was WebVan in 2000. I thought online grocery shopping was a really big deal. I was just the only user, apparently. Right. So sometimes it is a matter of like the technology is smart. Consumer demand may exist, but there's just something culturally that's not making it you know, match up for whatever reason. But Second Life, we jumped in and we jumped out as quickly as we jumped in. We're like, okay, this is just not a good place for us to be. And pivoted. I love the idea that you're trying it though, right? And this idea of whether, you know, you think of it as a a portfolio approach or, you know, stage gating, right? But of like, let's try these things. And the ones that make it past certain points, they unlock more support, more resources. And the ones that don't, you know, they're done. Those are, don't let them zombie around for years, but kind of move past those and go. Is that, and I know you you end up working with and advising so many different large companies. You're on the board of Campbell's. When you're talking to a multinational corporation, how do you advise them around embracing change or new things, right? Because big companies are often accused of being slow to adapt. So just curious how, when you're when you're in those rooms, what what is your advice and perspective? It's a great question. And a lot of it comes down to something that tends to work more often than not, logic. So, <laughs> and, and logic and candor. 
And to your point, yes, big companies are slower to move. Why? Because they're big. And when you've got something really big, it's hard to move it versus, you know, throwing a tennis ball across the room. So when you're advising large companies on changes that are happening, it all always has to start with the consumer. Like, let's just understand what has changed in the person who is currently buying our products, using our services, subscribing to our software, whatever it is. What are the things that have changed? What's in your locus of control and what's not in your locus of control? And what can you do about that? And that's where it becomes easier to discern between something that's a bright, shiny object and something that is about to replace something else that used to be the predominant behavior. Super interesting, perfect trans sort of moment to to gap bridge the gap here between that and Profitero, right? E-commerce in terms of replacing, although it's omni-channel, right? So maybe it's on top of not replacing, but would love to understand just from your point of view, what is the secret sauce of Profitero? What do you do better than anyone else? You know, what is what is your sort of calling card? Well, it's not our name, that's for sure, because it's pronounced Profitero. Yeah, well, and, that would help. And- I get that right. FYI, everybody gets it wrong. It is not the dessert. It made me hungry every time I said it, though, the other way. Yeah. You know, when I got to the company, I didn't start the company. I came in many years after it had already started. It was like, well, it has a lot of brand equity for people who actually know the brand. So I don't want to change it. But man, I got to teach people how to pronounce it right. And two years later, I'm still working it. So you, you are just like one of a million people that get the pronunciation not quite right the first time. So don't sweat it. It's not on you. It's the name. Anyway, so well, the reason why I joined Profitero was the same reason of everything else we've been discussing today, which is that intersection between consumer behavior and brand readiness. And I was looking at the company in Q4 of 2019, and we were looking at certain trends of what was happening in terms of this idea of omni-channel shopping, but really for impulse purchases, like candy, like milk, ice cream, things that you want that you are not going to get shipped to your home via two-day delivery. You know, buying electronics was something that happened online 10, 15 years ago, even beauty products. There were certain things that you ordered online and have been doing for 25 years you don't think about. But there were a number of things that were changing in 2019. Walmart started training a lot of their associates to actually work on the click and collect components. There were a lot of things that were happening. Instacart was picking up steam. This is all pre-COVID. Yeah. And so I said, oh, I think this, I think this is one of those things where the trend's going to go up and brands aren't going to be ready for it. And so this Profitero, who is experts in amassing massive data sets about how brands are and their competitors are showing up on that digital shelf and being able to help these brands figure out how to win. To me, that was very interesting. Like, how do we get these brands ready so that when online shopping moves from the considered purchase to the impulse purchase, we'll be ready. And then COVID hit. And everybody was buying everything online from you know, obviously from toilet paper, but also milk and ice cream and, you know, all of those things that you might not have been 
willing to purchase previously, but necessity became the mother of invention. So with Propaterra, we kind of saw where the marketplace was going in terms of being ready with e-commerce data and intelligence. But then the market came to us, you know, due to a extremely unfortunate circumstance. So being ready for that, I mean, admittedly, I didn't expect that to hit for another year or two to the degree that it did. Yeah, it's it's crazy interesting how fast it pulled forward so many technologies and consumer behaviors because of you know necessity. I'm very curious from your point of view, you know, as you know, in New York today, right, the, the mask mandates are sort of easing, and there's a lot of debate about people's shopping habits returning to, I'll call it, you know, air quote, new normal, right? What are your thoughts about e-commerce versus in-person shopping, you know, moving forward? We're going to move more to a hybrid model. People aren't necessarily going to do all their shopping online, but it is absolutely no question in my mind that people will at minimum be researching and building their shopping lists online and how they ultimately end up completing that equation is one piece of the puzzle and how they end up fulfilling is another piece of the puzzle. So you may actually finish buying all of your stuff on your phone, computer, whatever, but then you drive to the Walmart parking spot and somebody loads up your car. Is that e-commerce? Super interesting. Yeah, I feel like so many of these channels are going to end up merging together and being a little bit indecipherable. For Um, sure. And how do you count the revenue? And how do you count the cost? And all these other things that go into play. But in the end, that purchase was made without you ever walking into a store. And so what becomes the role of the physical shelf? How much more valuable or less valuable do end caps become? And how much more important does your search real estate become? Right. Yeah, what is what is the end cap of tomorrow? We, we can actually probably do another podcast around what is the end cap of the metaverse, uh, but maybe we'll, we'll save that for another time. <laughs> so I, I knew we were going to hit it off because I saw in a LinkedIn post you had that you quoted John Wooden, the very famous basketball coach from UCLA, where you said, quote, never mistake activity for achievement. And I thought it got after something really special about what you've delivered throughout your career, which is measurement, Right. My question for you is, how do you measure innovation? Obviously, you're looking at new platforms, new technologies, and all that is notoriously difficult to measure, right? Which kind of slows their growth because I'll go back to like TV, right? TV, everyone knew the Nielsen measurement as flawed as it was. Like, you knew if you put a Saturday morning cereal box ad on, you're going to sell X or in theory, sell X boxes of uh, you know, corn pops or whatever. And for social, it was very hard to kind of break through, even though they arguably had better metrics. How do you think about that? When you, you see something new, you think it's interesting, but you need to figure out how to measure it in a, in a new way. Well, I, it's great to find another John Wooden fan here. Admittedly, I didn't know anything about college basketball. And then my mentor had introduced me to Woodenisms and... Achievement over activity is one of those things that I say a few times a day. It's one of our core values at Profitero. So we're, we're big fans here. Wow, I didn't realize that. That's awesome. Yeah, we're, we're very into the woodenisms. Be quick, but don't hurry. There's a whole bunch. But measurement is one of those things that people feel becomes more of a safety net because it's quote-unquote proven. But they don't always think about what's the cost of not doing something. 
when e-commerce started becoming a bigger percentage of sales, the number one question that my clients would come to me and ask is, where's the incrementality? And I said, I don't know. Here's what I do know, that if you are not discoverable, somebody else will be and you will lose that sale. Can I prove it yet? No. Are you willing to test and learn? You damn well better be. And so a lot of it is a matter, not, I'm not saying move all your money into this or you know, in the early days of search or social, get rid of, you know, cancel all your TV, move over, test and learn. And if it's working, throw a little more fire into it. Do a study, do a little bit more, create KPIs that actually will align with the definitions of success. But to me, I find that measurement becomes more often than not the outcome of people not being willing to change the way they think about things. And the worst part about it is that it causes you to always do year-over-year comparisons like for like. And that means that you have not changed your marketing mix or any mix because you don't want to disrupt that like for like. Well, then what happens when brand X falls out of the sky, you know, getting some really great backing and they decide they want to build their brand on the backs of Amazon or Shopify or whatever, and they have a 2022 go-to-market strategy, not a 2022 marketing strategy that actually just builds on 21, which built on 20, which built on 18, 19 and 18 and so on and so forth. It's just iterative. You got to ask yourself, like, if I were building a brand today, what would I do? And that also means having some things that can make you very uncomfortable. But, you know, you got to get comfortable being uncomfortable. Yeah, I love it. I mean, I know we, we were introduced by Vanessa uh, on my team who was at ABI and sort of the founders behind that, right, are very famous for the zero-based budgeting, which has upsides and downsides. But I always, I always think about that idea of if you were starting it today, would you put your money here? And it's such an eye-opening way to look at anything you're spending money on because there are the sacred cows, right, where it's, oh, I did that last year. So that automatically gets approved rather than is this the best use today of that money? So I think that's really interesting. I love your point on ZBB. There's pros and cons, but that is the thing I love about it the most. Yeah, it's it's just a way to refresh, right? And it doesn't mean you're not going to do the same thing you did the year before. It just, it has to stand up to the scrutinization as if it's the first time. Absolutely. So I absolutely loved your brand interception index for the Super Bowl. It made me laugh this morning. I was, I was doing some research. And I was like, this is awesome. Uh, but basically, it measures brands that conquested the Super Bowl TV spots, essentially, right? The idea is the conquest of the tried and true. It's something, one of the very first things we did at Venture Fuel, we helped us a very big brand that was trying to conquest the World Cup. Uh, they were not the official sponsor. They were trying to figure out how they could break through. And we found a startup and technology that enabled them to sort of find all the viewers, right? And then they did a study that 70% of viewers thought they were the official sponsor. And it was just this moment of like, the underdog brand spent 100 grand versus the 100 million. And it's like, so clever and smart. So uh, when I saw that, I just, it was just candy to me uh, to watch. So curious, was there any one brand that stood out in terms of the interception index this year? I think Constellation Brands did a great job. So you know, uh, owners of 
Modelo and Corona, at least in the US. And the way that they intercepted all the other beer brands was remarkable. Now, in general, you can't buy advertising for beer brands at retailers. So if you're, you know, shopping on walmart.com, you can't buy branded beer um, keyword terms, but you can on Instacart. It has a uh, special rules. And so on Instacart, you kept seeing these Modelo ads just popping up whenever you were searching for any of the other beer advertisers, regional, national. So I was really impressed with the way they really approached almost like insurgency. Yeah. So smart. Well, I'll get you out of here on this. Throughout your career, as we've covered this, you've been a visionary, right? Spotting social before it was social, building 360i into a full-service shop with iterated offerings, and now with everything you're doing at Profitero from an e-commerce innovation standpoint. So curious, what are you excited about? Are there new technologies, new formats that you think are sort of on the cusp of being interesting? There are many I'm not sure which ones are going to stick. I have to say I'm more stymied now than I've been in a long time because so many things I'm seeing that I'm not that I need an education on in order to understand which technologies are going to be appropriate kind of going forward. Appropriate being not too you know not interruptive but adding value. And to me I think a lot of this is just about what is a brand going to do if they get involved in it that's going to add value to the experience versus interrupting it in the same way that you talked about you know, the Saturday morning cartoons. Nobody wants a commercial break. So what are you doing to add value to the equation? And I think if you're just asking like, what's that currency exchange between brand and consumer, then you usually end up with the right answer. So while, while I'm not really going to be making a bet at the moment, I will say I think that's a really good litmus test to check. I thought you said it beautifully earlier in the conversation, right? That sort of intersection between brand readiness and customer behavior. That's such an interesting lens through which to view this. It's like, you've got to follow what the customer is doing and then think, okay, where does the brand enhance that experience and where the brand is ready to plug in uh, is a pretty cool point to be sort of tip of the spear, but not all the way out over the, the edge of the ocean there. I like the metaphor. <laughs> Maybe I think I mixed a few there. I love mixed metaphors. They, they're more memorable that way. Well, Sarah, this has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for your time today and everything you're doing to spark change. Uh, where can people find out more uh, information about you, about uh, Profitero? I guess Google works. <laughs> but yeah, Profitero.com is certainly uh, certainly the best way to go. I'm on LinkedIn. I'll, I'll friend anybody. I am very promiscuous in my invitations. I, I'm, I, I always like meeting new people. I love it. Well, thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us today. If you enjoyed this conversation with Sarah, you are going to love our Rogue Women event, March 24th, 12 p.m. Eastern time. Just go to at Venture Fuel on LinkedIn and you will see all the information on how to register. It is completely free. We have a tremendous lineup of amazing female visionaries, executives, and founders sharing their journeys with us. We hope that you join us. And so until next time.